want devoted followers who leave their families for you, give their money to you, give their bodies to you, give up their lives for you, consider you God, and will kill for you? Don't you want to become a cult leader? Since the death of God, there's been a vacancy open. You could fill that void. Here's how. Hello, and welcome back to the second episode of The Ideas Left. With me, Jack Cooper, and the returning guest, Thomas Cooper. We've already failed on the uh, the once-a-week upload schedule, so it's going to be once a fortnight from, from now on in. But we made it to the second episode, so we're not doing too badly. Firstly, though, what are we actually talking about today? We thought it'd be interesting in light of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement <sighs> and uh, the nature of ideology today as a whole to, um, to talk about cults and the applied psychology behind cults and how almost any rational person can get, get sucked into the, the life. Especially considering COVID-19 is basically the end of times, and we're probably all going to die at some point. This is the apocalypse. First, I want to talk about something that really scares me. I think it scares anyone. This kind of Chucky-like figure of doom is known as the nuclear baby. The nuclear baby was originally prophesied to be born on the 12th of June. Prophesized? 2007. By a cult <laughs> known as the House of Yahweh. It was said that the birth would kill a third part of man over a fourth part of the earth in and around the great river Euphrates. Somehow, this didn't happen. So, because of some of the vague elements in the initial prophecy, and despite the countdown timer to the 12th of June on the House of Yahweh website, we're still waiting for the inevitable impending nuclear destruction that awaits us all. In this episode, we're going to explain that this isn't crazy. It's not. That perhaps by the end of this episode, you're going to be believing in <laughs> the nuclear baby like we do. Yeah. It's only a matter of time. Because it's not science fiction, as they say. It's, it's, it's coming. Yeah, and anyone who specifically says um, on their poster it's not science fiction, surely it can't be. Yeah. Our advertising laws are there for a reason. Exactly. So, uh, strap in and get ready to have your mind blown. Welcome to the saga of the nuclear baby. The indoctrination has begun. <laughs> Here's how. And to clear up any confusion... We're defining cults as an organised group or a solitary person whose purpose is to dominate cult members and impose an ideology by using psychological manipulation and pressure strategies. The real star of this episode, alongside Alfred Adler, who's, who's in everything and we will dip into throughout this episode, his ideas on this, 
is a man called Arthur J. Dykeman, and he was a psychotherapist and researcher into cults. In order to explain how someone could believe such a thing as the nuclear baby and to explore how this could really be anyone, we're going to look at the four basic interrelated behaviours that Dykeman found in cults in extreme forms. These are, number one, compliance with a group, number two, dependence on a leader, number three, devaluing the outsider, and number four, avoiding dissent. So, let's get started. Behaviour one, compliance with a group. This compliance with a group relates very well to a theory that Alfred Adler had called the social feeling or social interest. Now, this relates to a person's kinship with other living beings and a sense of belonging in the human community and stems from an inferiority unique to, well, all human beings in that we are weak and we rely upon the group to survive. Dietman said that we are social beings and derive benefits from joining with others. Groups can provide a gratifying sense of belonging, support and purpose while leaders can teach and inspire. And it's this sense of belonging and purpose that uh, cult members can get from from being in that group and from complying with that group. I mean, I think um, the essential mechanism that the cult plays on is the human longing to belong. Um, the death of Judeo-Christian religion essentially has left this fragmented cultural environment where when we're asking and looking for answers to the existential questions, there's nowhere to go but realistically to look inwards and uh, try and find them within ourselves and this is this is a terribly terribly scary task so I think part of the phenomenon of the cult is um, this contemporary way of providing us with a structure and meaning that um, that we perhaps crave plus if we look outside of cults to various groups if you take Liverpool Football Club who (laughs) recently have a very anticlimactically won the league after about 30 years. Football fans, they, they, they form sort of a sense of belonging and get a great sense of sense of meaning from being in that group. Yeah, I mean, um, etymologically speaking, cult derives from culture. And uh, I think it's interesting that when one looks at the dangerous cults per se, as the media highlights, uh, Jonestown, Manson, etc. The behaviours of the members towards the leaders aren't particularly far removed from how people act around celebrities today, and uh, even even technology. I mean, there's a there's a theologian called um called Pascal in the 17th century, and he said rather beautifully that all of our troubles stem from one source: our inability to be left with ourselves in our own private rooms. Even the court had to invent the jester for the king, complete with, with all of his privileges, will grow miserable indeed if uh, he has to confront himself and become aware of the realities of his existence. Hence, we have the, the jester to distract the king. And I think what um, popular culture is, um, at least uh, relating to the cult, is this kind of 24-7 jester 
to uh, to distract us from the reality. So even if we're not looking to uh, to the group, we're looking to something to provide us with our escape. I'm talking of escapes. You want to go for another one? Maybe. Shall we wait until the kids have gone? <laughs> hey, look. The other one's talking to those freaks who tried to push us their personality test. Look at that bloody new wellness loony. Oi, you know what would be fucking funny? Two of us in there. We should do their test. Take a weirdo for a ride around the paddock. Freak out the freaks. <laughs> Might also be quite warm in there. A common technique cults use to attract new members is called love bombing, in which they shower praise and attention upon potential new recruits. Lonely young people are particularly vulnerable to this, as this example shows. God, this is going to be funny. I'm going to freak the fuck out of this sheep. He'll probably walk out worshipping me. Uh, The personality test is just a few questions to determine how you're being prevented from unlocking your true potential. Oh, okay. I'll tell you what's unlocking your true potential, mate. That tie. Right, question one. Do you often make efforts to make people you're not fond of laugh or smile? I'll fuck with him. No. Actually, it's more of a yes. In social situations, do you crack wise to help yourself fit in? No. I mean, yes. But no. No. It's a no. The answer's no. What was my plan again? Great. You know, a lot of different people come and do the test, but we find what they mostly have in common is that they're not where they want to be in their life right now. Losers. Right. Would you say you're where you want to be in your life right now? Fuck you. Not particularly. These issues have their roots in childhood. How were things in your family when you were growing up? Well, you know, my dad left home when I was 10, so... What do you think the 10-year-old Jeremy would have said to his dad if he'd had the courage? Don't know, just... Don't go. Don't go. It's okay. You're in a safe place. This is a laugh. (laughs) In an alternate universe, Jared Osborne was last seen near the river Euphrates. And also, I think, um, removed removed from that, an example of love bombing can be seen on Instagram. And, uh, it's potentially one of the reasons why people rely on Instagram and find it hard to to uh, remove themselves from it and it's these circles of affirmation that are kind of created whereby um, someone uh, it can be safe in the knowledge that they may be able to post a picture and then get 30 or 40 affirming comments um, so I think inst- popular culture such as Instagram also plays into these uh, plays into these these psychological psychological mechanisms quite well and again, I think I'd like to highlight the the evolutionary aspect to this because this is the really interesting thing with with cults that they're often highlighted as this kind of freakish organization that it's like who who would want to be part of that that's that's crazy and they do do some pretty crazy things, but actually the inherent psychology behind behind the cults and behind their appeal well that that is, that is universal so what we're talking about the compliance with the group this is this is um evolutionary speaking banishment from a larger group 
in the hunter-gatherer times could endanger an individual's survival. So, therefore, an acute sensitivity to the group's wishes and requirements probably carried an evolutionary advantage, which means that socially aware, adept individuals would eventually dominate the gene pool through the process of natural selection. So, if we're talking about compliance with the group, it's, it's, it's so important because back then, it's, if, you, if, you don't, if you don't comply, it's effectively death, banishment is death. I mean, once you leave, you're kind of, um, you're back to square one in regard to what Pascal's talking about. Um, you're back in your own private room um, with only yourself to look for, for, for your answers. So the whole kind of, uh, the meaning that the cult provided you, the answers to these these transpersonal questions, um, you're back to to where we're all, um, in fact, quite, quite scared to be. I mean, research um, reported that uh, the reasons ex-cult members gave for joining cults were um, spirituality, personal development and life dissatisfaction and I think that the the life dissatisfactions are really a really interesting one because I mentioned earlier these kind of um, these district the popular culture as a method of distraction but I think um, popular culture can't be well we it's hard to criticize it for being a method of distraction because if it's not there people actually might start looking at themselves and becoming dissatisfied with their life so it's kind of this cultural net that's playing a a paradoxical role for um it's needed to to prevent this dissatisfaction from from spreading for when we're when we're distracted constantly it's a lot harder to be dissatisfied and then if we're dissatisfied um we're a lot more prone to to joining um joining these these movements so the mechanisms that are preventing us from properly examining ourselves are somewhat of a of a mercy um if i was going to be really pessimistic <laughs> yeah and well one of the an important practice for, for adler in his psychotherapy was was developing the social feeling because uh well the, the more developed the community feeling the more div- diminished the inferiority feeling which is associated with a sense of alienation and isolation so he wanted to uh, increase and strengthen the person's social feeling community feeling um, as inherently that 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 is a good thing mm. as human beings we are social creatures and so in terms of it's completely understandable how people could want to be part of this. I mean, I think um, Jung has, to divert away from Adler to Jung for, for one moment, I think Jung has the perfect quote to, to describe the... Um, this is a little teaser for season two. <laughs> to describe um, the kind of the, the, the psychic ec- epidemic, per se, and he says, um, people will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid facing their own souls. And whether this be this this anything be be joining a cult, be um, crazily supporting a football team, be be making um, making TikTok videos twenty four seven, I think it's only when you step back and look at what you're actually doing, um, perhaps can you see the absurdity behind it. Behavior two, dependence on the leader. A good case study of a cult leader is the man behind 
the nuclear baby. This man was originally called Buffalo Bill Hawkins. He was a police officer. He was suspended, resigned and then did what we'd probably all do. (laughs) He changed his name to Yisrael. (laughs) And, well, the house of Yahweh, the cult, followed. And from this point now, Hawkins says that he and his brother were prophesied, prophesied in both the Old and New Testaments as the two witnesses sent by Yahweh to prepare the world for the second coming of Yeshua, the Messiah. I mean, um, I think Yisrael is quite a, he's quite a good example, not only because um, he's potentially got the greatest name I've ever heard, and I'll be uh, changing my name to um, Yalestein. <laughs> as soon as that, as soon as the podcast finishes, but I think the 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 interesting thing about him specifically is the kind of uh, the tiny semblance of preordained authority that they give themselves. There's kind of this um, this tidbit of supposed truth, um, referencing the Bible, probably selecting selecting a few quotes that uh, they can perhaps twist their way. It's kind of like presenting to the uh, they they present to the cult the cult members here is um something that perhaps could be true, thus everything I say perhaps could be true. Also, Israel fulfills the relationship that so many cult leaders have to their followers, which is interestingly this 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 parent child relationship. And uh, Dykeman talks about this and talks about how the regressive wish for security that uses the family as a model um, creates an authoritarian leadership structure where there's the parent, which is the leader, and then a close-knit exclusive group, which is the children. And then since the leader-parent has many of the insecurities of the follower-child, reality must be distorted to both to maintain the child's illusion that the parent can always provide protection and also to, well, allow the parent to maintain control, maintain their power. Uh, I think uh, I think protection um, protection's the key, both, uh, both physical protection and um, protection mentally from, uh, from um, pervading existential questions and uh, kind of an assurance of truth. I've already mentioned him, and I know it's on Adler, but again, Jung has the perfect quote um, to reference this. More quotes. More, quote, more quotes from Jung. And he said, um, the disciple, modestly he sits at the master's feet and guards against having ideas of his own. Mental laziness becomes a virtue. One can bask in the sun of a semi-divine being, enjoying the archaism and infantilism of his unconscious fantasies without loss to himself, for all responsibility lies at the master's door. And I think I think that's the key. Um, we like looking to the other for truth, and we like latching onto something um, if we think it's true. And I think this uh, this is a good example to apply to kind of um, identity politics and the ideological um, camps that we we take today. We like to identify um, and have a preordained worldview to remove any element of uh, of critical thinking. Like I know it's 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 comforting to say I'm a Marxist, so I um, accept as gospel everything that Marx says. I mean, Jung also said um, he said uh, I thank God every day that I'm Jung and I'm not a Jungian. 
which I find really, really interesting. Well, I think another um, another element that plays into the um, the the deification of the the cult leader per se is the the characteristics that they typically um, typically embody, and I think charisma is the key. Um, like I was reading uh, the biography of Charles Manson the other day, and it was a really interesting segment in which um, the first time he went to one of the most prestigious clubs in L.A in which you could barely get a, get a space on the dance floor as soon as this um this tiny scruffy man started to dance um the dance floor cleared and all attention was on him and uh bystanders described it as like um tendrils of electricity shooting from his fingertips and i think that uh charisma is really interesting because it seems to be seems to be a quality that people naturally imbue but in terms of a bystander or an onlooker, I can see how the relationship between charisma and almost the divine and some form of divine truth could come about in the sense that you feel yourselves being attracted to this person almost magnetically. And uh, you could, you could um, mix this up with the idea that you're being attracted um, because of some sort of eternal knowledge or presence of the divine. It's also that certainty and the confidence of, of the speaker and of the cult leader that accompanies the charisma. So the fact that they're able to just with complete certainty go, on this date, the world is going to end. And then somehow the next day when the world doesn't end, they continue and they mm. continue and somehow, well, the, the prophecy was right, the assumption was right, but something happened that meant that it's it's in the future and it, it's coming up and that we talk about with, with charisma I feel like people like to have someone to make the decisions for them to the people like someone to have that that confidence and that certainty and what the cult leader is doing is that sort of extreme example of that in which they're making every decision for that person often the wealth and their job and their home and even relationships it's the the cult leader and that sort of authoritarian structure that is deciding everything. Well, Eric, um, there's an author called Eric Fromm who who uh, wrote an amazing book called um, Escape from Freedom. I think it might be a, it might have been translated into the Fear of Freedom. But his the the, the central crux of his book um, is essentially that once people face the responsibility of their lives. Um, they will do anything they can to kind of escape these, and I think that this, um, this, this, this uh, cult leader who we've projected some sort of truth on is um, the perfect escape, really. And I think it's actually that the relationship between truth and certainty is really, really interesting. Um, so we're going to reference it in the last podcast. One thing that makes alt-right commentators so alluring to young people is one, um, they talk so fast, so we assume that there must be some sort of factual backing. And true, they say everything with with such certainty. Um, we almost see them as kind of embodiment of some form of factual truth because they almost believe it themselves. And it's also in terms of the dependence on the leader, I think we can relate this to the idea of perfection and the want and the desire that we have to have 
role models and to venerate these 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 people. So it's even if you if you just take the relationship of everyday people to celebrities in terms of wanting to believe that there are these perfect human beings that exist and that we can look up to and you can see the cult leader as an extension of mm. that. I mean, I think um, in relation to the celebrities and the cult leader, there's a nice parallel there because we're always looking um, for shortcuts um, in life to get what to where we want to be. Um, so people uh, modelling after a celebrity, they might look for shortcuts to to look like the celebrity, the kind of the three week workout plan, the tooth whitening paste. And I think there's an interesting parallel between the shortcut to to physical perfection and the shortcut to to mental perfection we look for a shortcut to truth and that's why i think we're so quick to take on um take on political ideologies as our entire being um and certain marxists certainly consider themselves ontologically reducible to marxists because once you reduce yourself to it um the the element of critical thinking the element of effort goes out of the window. So I think that's a really, really interesting parallel there. Behaviour 3. Devaluing the outsider. Now, if we go back to return to our favourite human being, Alfred Adler. Carl Jung. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. Anyway, not yet. Um, Adler wrote that when violence is to be committed... It is frequently done by appealing to justice, custom, freedom, the welfare of the oppressed and in the name of the of culture. Power seekers transform social feeling from an end into a means and it's pressed into the service of nationalism and imperialism. So going back to the social feeling, what Adler was talking about, this valuing the group and the desire for belonging in the group, this can be turned into... Um, well, the devaluing of the outsider, and I think um, if you look at, I'm, I'm speaking purely from from uh, A level psychology here, but the the Stanley Milgram experiment, um, where he got people to administer electric shocks to to other people on the pretense that it was a a teacher punishing a learner for getting an answer wrong on a on a word association. Um, people were much more likely to exhibit the shock um, to even even fatal levels when they weren't in direct content contact sorry with the with the person that they were they were shocking and i think that's an example of how the the dehumanization works um, and how when we're talking about an other that we're um, we're not in contact with and thus we can devalue um, we are capable of doing terrible things to them, really. Mm. And it's related to what we've been talking about with the leader in the sense of that um, desiring the perfection, the veneration, in terms of if the outsiders who often are, and that is currently us with the House of Yahweh and, well, all the cults that we're talking about. Not yet. <laughs> we're, we're the outsiders that are criticising these people and if you have venerated them and wish to venerate them and a lot of the reasons that people go into cults is related to their desire to sort of find this truth that you've talked about and find this meaning if someone from the outside is well sort of slandering that person their god their truth and their desire 
their journey for meaning, then, well, of course they're going to react badly. Yeah, and uh, that's really interesting. And I think um, this this devaluing of the other is uh, really interesting when, when viewed in terms of kind of political discourse of today, um, when you have the, the, the two polar... So let's take uh, let's take the the extreme right and the the extreme left as the two the two polar opposites. Um, I think that they almost take pride in the fact that they don't recognise the other. Um, they view the other purely in terms of a of a caricature. I wouldn't be friends with a Tory. <laughs> exactly. Once you view the other as a as a caricature, it makes kind of reconciling your. Um, your meeting with them, um, them as a human and the caricature, basically, basically impossible, and that's part of the reason I think that that discourse, um, at least online, is so is so polarized because you can let these these uh, these caricatured beliefs um, run free. And Dietman refers to this as desig- well, designating the adversary using words as stupid, rigid, lazy, reactionary bleeding heart cold and uh well yeah you can see I think this that's the perfect example yeah and you can see this in the immigration debate which is a fantastic example in terms of people's access to immigrants not coming into contact with immigrants they are almost immigrants are the ultimate outsider they're the ultimate other well i was um a little a little personal example uh i used to be skeptical of um of immigration and uh, I especially used to be skeptical of uh, Muslim immigration and I think this was partially due to the narratives that the, the media were was fueling and partially due to what I was reading but in September I went to work at a refugee camp um, in Serbia and it was a refugee camp for Afghani um, Iraqi and Pakistani um, refugees uh, pretty much all of them were Muslim and um, I found that that experience completely changed my outlook. Completely changed my outlook. And now it's a, uh, I kind of get angry when when you see them painted as aliens because they are um, just as human as we are. And this can be related to the contact hypothesis, which is a theory that suggests that intergroup contact under appropriate conditions can effectively reduce prejudice between majority and minority group members. And the hypothesis would suggest that your experience of the immigrants as an other changed upon visiting that camp. There are flaws in the theory, but it does seem to make a lot of sense. I mean, also, uh, this also um, in Hegel's book, The Phenomenology of Spirit, he's got the idea that... Um, in order to truly affirm ourselves as human, we need to. Um, we also need to recognise the other as human, and this um, this recognition between two parties of each other as um, having value and uh, having autonomy is almost what what grants us freedom. So I think, at least in terms of uh, the political debate that we were just um, we were just talking about. This recognition is key um, and is actually really beneficial to both parties if um, if it can be carried out in a safe environment. And 
examples of where the devaluing the outsider has horrific consequences. An example is the Tokyo subway sound attack, which was uh, an act of domestic terrorism occurred in 1995 um, by members of the cult movement A.M. Shinrikyo. Nice. (laughs) In which (laughs) they released sarin, which is a uh, chemical agent on the metro during rush hour and killed 12 people severely injuring 50 and causing temporary vision problems for for nearly 1,000 others and this attack against the people of Tokyo could only be perpetrated with this ultimate devaluing of the outsider and us and them narrative I think the, the notion of devaluing is really interesting and what it actually means because um, I think at least in terms of that attack and another example that's quite cogent being the Holocaust. Um, some aspects of the, the, the human are radically devalued and yet some aspects, um, almost myths surrounding them, are extremely um, extremely overvalued, like especially in relation to in relation to Jews, the whole kind of Western mythology um, this this anti-Semitic sentiment that uh, overemphasized certain characteristics that a Jew would have that was um, blown up to the absolute extreme, so much so that they were seen as human um, by the Nazi guards, but just in the way that uh, a cancerous tumor is seen as part of the human. Really, they were a human within a society that was slowly, slowly killing it. A good example for this Auschwitz case study is a man named Oskar Gruening, who was a camp guard. He described Auschwitz like this. Auschwitz's main camp was like a small town. It had its gossip. It had a vegetable shop where you could buy bones to make broth. There was a canteen, a cinema, a theatre with regular performances. There was a sports club of which I was a member. There were dances, all fun and entertainment. Now for him, he didn't experience much of the horrors of Auschwitz and when he did he said that he was shocked and indeed horrified by them but he didn't desert (laughs) and he could justify it by the mass propaganda that he'd been fed in that he did view Jews as this evil that needed to be exterminated but even for him when being confronted by the, the awful extermination just he was talking about how they would just be shooting 80% 80% of the people who came, the old women and the, the vulnerable just in the, in, the, in the street and then just treating them like animals and throwing them into the back of lorries. Even for him, that caused, that caused mass in, internal turmoil that he had to discuss it with a, with, a, with a guard and did indeed apply to leave Auschwitz, but that was turned down. I mean, it's crazy the way that people people can try and find justifications for their for their actions but in relation to to Auschwitz um, there's a book called The Nazi Doctors and I've forgotten who it's by but it's absolutely brilliant and there's an account in there of a doctor who was um he was trying to trying to reconcile the oath that all doctors have to take to um uh try and uh prevent harm I just probably butchered it but it's something it's something along those lines and what went on in Auschwitz and he said that he was um he had in mind net harm on society, and uh, if he sees someone with a cancerous tumour, 
he uh, takes his scalpel and he slices it off and the Jew to German society is what a cancerous tumour is to the body so by only the extermination of every Jew can the society be cleansed of its, uh, of its cancer mm, and on that point of the Nazi doctors I was recently reading about Mengele and it was talking that his attitude actually uh, was just that the Jews were already dead so he was able to carry about his task with sort of a cheerful smile and uh, <laughs> a uh, politeness and uh, well and his rationale was that when they arrived they were already dead so the people he was dealing with and experimenting upon they weren't they weren't human mm. beings they weren't living human beings they were just they were just dead things that he could then for the purpose of scientific research use and at least he got a at least they got a lollipop at the end of it huh well that is dark <laughs> i mean that um that plays into there's been a lot of uh in america i've forgotten the name of a physician but one of the leading gynecologists has a statue um has a statue in washington and it came out that lots of his experimentation was done on um was done on black female slaves and he's considered one of the fathers of gynecology um, and his justification for it was that uh black women don't feel pain like like white women which i think is really interesting because it's the same justification people give for for killing and eating animals nowadays this is the vegan rant that you've been waiting for <laughs> i'm not i'm not i'm not gonna go into the vegan rant but we, could. we, we could we could <laughs> i think you can uh there may one day be um that parallel repeated where uh people almost they hear that 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 uh, a cow can't feel or experience pain as a human and they uh they laugh at at the ludicrous nature behind it and it is interesting the way that oscar groening was talking about the way that the nazis treated the jews just in terms of the way they were killing them and just throwing them back shooting them in the head and just throwing them mm. in the back of vans he literally said they were treating them like animals so it could and the science and the ethical ideas behind sort of sentience and what we know about animals and what the pain they feel and the intelligence that they have it could very much be like another yeah holocaust going that has gone on but on such well i don't want to say a more terrible scale but such a larger scale i mean i think it boils down to we've gone off on a complete tangent but what it boils <laughs> down to is that the animal is at the center of their own conscious um phenomenological world realistically um and whatever feelings they have um we're pretty sure they they feel pain and uh, if you're killing the, the humane killing is such a um it's such a such a terrible thing to say because if you're killing something that doesn't want to be killed um it cannot be done in a humane way it just can't and returning to well, what we were originally talking about, which is the devaluing of the outsider. This is all linked into it because take the Auschwitz camp guard, take the actions of the cult group who had killed 12 people and injured thousands more on the Tokyo subway, take the Jonestown massacre. There were so many examples in which words like evil have been bandied around if you take Mengele 
so many examples and what we're talking about is that the way to perpetrate such actions it doesn't take evil it takes a number of steps and an incredibly important factor into it probably the most key factor is the devaluing of the outsider and when you think about it um it's something that we actually do every single day um we we form these groups and we are we laugh at the expense of others by doing that we are devaluing the outsider behavior four avoiding dissent so like devaluing the outsider avoiding dissent is a very important part of the belief system of the cult and it is effectively distorting reality and a physical way that cults do this is by moving their members into a sort of compound an isolated location that physically keeps them away from others and Jonestown is a prominent example of this in terms of they actually moved to another country where the state and the government and those beliefs they just the outside world can touch them. Well, I think um, an interesting, uh, an interesting point about about avoiding the dissent is um, the fact that typically people within the cult are so psychologically conditioned that they don't dissent. When we identify with something so strongly, um, and especially when we're conditioned to identify with that thing, um, we lose the ability we lose the ability to question. I mean, the majority of the dissent, of course, comes from the outside, um, which then can be solved by intense isolation. This sort of psychological conditioning, this this is seen in so many examples of, of states. For example, North Korea, which we sadly didn't get to visit. I will do. I will do. Coronavirus... Um, stop me in my tracks but I'll get there and in North Korea uh, to control the flow of outside information all TV sets are registered with the state which modifies them to ensure they receive only approved channels and as another as a witness said of life in the nation you were brainwashed you don't know life outside you were brainwashed from the time you know how to talk about four years of age from nursery school brainwashing through education this happens everywhere in life society even at home is that specific to north korea that was related to north korea because i think the kind of uh the quote could just be applied to any society um globally so i think if anyone thinks um that our our sources of information don't undergo some form of control um whether it be by a corporation or whether it be by a government um I think they're kidding themselves at the end of the day. And in relation to education, a, mm. a relevant point in relating in relation to the Black Lives Matter yeah. movement, what they want is, and what, what should happen is more education of Britain's role, colonial role, and the role of the empire and slavery, because it's recognising that education is a form of psychological conditioning. What we teach people and what we learn, that is selective. I mean, if anything, education's the um, the most effective form of psychological conditioning, because instead of you having to literally go out and find this teacher to give you this 
this uh, worldview in a in a book where um, you're you're accepting that this teacher who is teaching you is this well they are a government proved figure of authority and they are teaching you a curriculum which uh, is at the mercy of the government mm. and in relation to cults it's that the motivation for the avoiding dissent it's it's almost a two-pronged strategy in the sense that you're very selective in revealing information to the cult members, but also the cult members will be motivated to avoid any outside information that could possibly go against that worldview. Mm. And this is related to, well, so many things in, in the external world in terms of ideologies, in, in terms of beliefs that people have that they would they want to think, point them towards this truth. I mean, in psychology, um, I think uh, it's referred to as as cognitive dissonance, where we're suddenly confronted with um, with an idea that goes a goes against our um, goes against our, our typical worldview. And uh, another thing that's interesting is that um, we're almost psychologically predisposed to quash cognitive dissonance. Um, if we're given an idea that doesn't doesn't fit or rast, uh, radically um, diverges from how we view the world, we just uh, we tend to we tend to ignore it. And I think that's true for the, that's true for the most part. And again, um, I hate to harper on about political ideologies, but I so I see so much of it on Twitter today. Um, we do ignore the uh, the evils of our even our own side. And if you take Brexit, for example, yeah. it's this relationship between identity and belief. So if you're attacking someone's beliefs and attacking someone's political views, for example, people can find that or view that as an attack on their identity as a whole. But I mean, that's, that's completely the same, though, um, at least with some people I know and their relationship to the Labour Party. Um, perhaps their parents grew up working class... Um, voted Labour, so now they unquestionably are um, a Labour supporter. It becomes part of your identity, uh, even if you know very little about it, and that's the true danger. When uh, you're reducible to it, you don't think critically. Um, and I think, again, that's such a such a prevalent part of uh, political discourse, at least amongst at least amongst people of our age today. Again, I'm not gonna not gonna name any names. <laughs> and it's that sort of underlying fear of death, which you can relate to it in terms of relating the belief to the identity. If someone's attacking your beliefs, they're attacking you, and it's that that fear of extermination and fear of kind of just being being destroyed in that argument. You can relate that to an underlying fear of death. I think uh, I'm not sure I buy into the whole fear of death thing, but I think um, it can be linked back to what we said earlier that in terms of uh, the decline of of Judeo Judeo Christianity, we now cling on to these ideas that we think could give us meaning um, within the cosmos, and that's why we're um, so uninclined to let them go. Because without these things that we believe um, help us construct our identity and give us meaning, who are we but strangers to ourselves? 
in relation to the denial of death there was nice. a, there was a book <laughs> there was a book called the denial of death by Ernest Becker by Ernest Becker which I would recommend have you read it I've read most of it okay <laughs> and um, I've read a review of it on Goodreads which yeah exactly okay reading it now on Wikipedia um, <laughs> and that relates to this idea in that beneath everything or effectively everything he relates to this denial of death and that sort of fear of death I mean I I, uh, I I think that's interesting but I think he's the prime example of what we've been talking about and almost that belief is the prime example of what we've been talking about we long for truth so we long to reduce things everything's so much simpler if there's one explanation behind it because it doesn't require much critical thinking at all if everything I do if everything I say, if everything I think I can boil down to well it's because of my fear of death it makes the, one, it makes the fact that I do them a lot scarier and uh, no sorry, a lot less scary and um, two it's just an example of a pre-packaged philosophy or a pre-packaged worldview, which then for the rest of my life, I don't really have to critically think at all. I've got my, my belief that realistically um, is unfalsifiable, so I could, could happily consider as true. I think that's pretty harsh on Ernest Becker there. It's not harsh. It's not harsh. I think, uh, I think it's, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot in the idea. Um, I think it's a really interesting idea but I just think you must admit it's the perfect example of the reduction in search of a truth surely yeah well many cults are it's just this idea of the search for a truth it's a search for one truth it's a search for meaning and that's found in religion that's found in science that's found in, in political beliefs and political views and this is I suppose what we're getting at with this entire episode it's just that the people in these cults the people who are supposedly well the people who are believing these things they're not unusual incredibly extraordinary people they're not weird people they're very normal people there's a lot of intelligent people mm. intelligent rational people who've been drawn into this stuff I mean I think I'd go as far to say that um, the cult as a symbol is the uh, the kind of the grim final logic of uh, the body's reaction against um, intense introspection because when we introspect we realize we don't have the answers to these uh, to these questions of existence and these questions of truth so of course when confronted with that fact we look at we look at easy ways of uh, achieving them and whether that's Jack reading uh, The Denial of Death or someone <laughs> joining a cult, um, I think there's a really interesting parallel there. I don't think there's a very interesting parallel there. I feel like that's attempting to portray me as some sort of... <laughs> no, I just think it's... Uh, I don't want to say you've proven, because again, uh, it's probably a bit harsh, but it's interesting how your example um, falls into exactly what we've been saying and exactly what I think that nowadays the pre-packaged worldview is the most popular and uh, we love to identify ourselves with one because it makes everything so much easier alright you got me 
I'm in the process of setting up the cult left at the moment, so. <laughs> anyway, if we go back to the camp guard in Auschwitz, so many people would, on the surface, just say he's evil. But we think he's a hero. <laughs> Oscar Burning <laughs> is an incredibly unexceptional human being. And was an incredibly unexceptional human being. And the fact that at Auschwitz, there's no record of anyone deserting on moral grounds suggests that it would have taken, had to have taken a very extraordinary human being to go against the mass brainwashing, propaganda, and general sort of societal pressure. And the, the sad fact is, and uh, I don't use extraordinary in its typical sense here, but perhaps the only extraordinary being um, at least uh, using extraordinary um, akin to how one would use it to describe a cult leader was Adolf Hitler at the time because he uh, he imbued all these qualities and he's probably one of the um, one of the clearest examples of um, a cult leader on a on a huge scale that, that we have so let's return to what we were talking about at the beginning with the nuclear baby. This prophecy of a nuclear attack that's coming. It was meant to be on June the 12th, 2007. It didn't happen. It's pending it's any pending. day now. The nuclear baby is yet to be born. But the belief in the nuclear baby and the system of thought that is behind that and the people involved in the cult the system of thought gives a bit too much credit <laughs> perhaps perhaps but I think from everything we've discussed and if you are still here after this discussion yeah well so. you've made it well done <laughs> you better be a vegan now as well yeah you've rode the tangents <laughs> and, uh, the various elements to the discussion you'll hopefully you'll believe like us that anyone can believe that stuff mm. And we're all we're all a lot more susceptible to it than uh, than we think. And if we uh, if we actually um, take a take a step back and look at the the absurd ways that um, we've been avoiding the confrontation with our souls, um, I think we kind of are faced with the reality that we're all in some form of cult in a, in one way or another. And hopefully you'll have also absorbed the various unconscious messages that we've led into this podcast that have conditioned for our nefarious purposes. <laughs> <laughs> and that nefarious purpose being follow the Instagram account, uh, the ideas left. Thank you, and we will see you in a fortnight. Hopefully. Life is pain. Life is only pain. Have fun in your rat race life, living paycheck to paycheck for corporate gains. You can't be a nonconformist if you don't drink coffee. No, 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 no. I'm not gonna be in the talent show. Goodbye.